0: After these things, that's how um, the chapter we'll just read uh, began. So that begs the question, after what things? Well, after Jesus had been crucified and buried, after he had risen from the dead and already appeared to his disciples two times, after all these things, Jesus showed himself again. Why, I wonder. If you like music as much as I do, then you've undoubtedly been to many a concert where the performer leaves the stage before the audience is really ready for them to be done. And we all know the routine. You stand up, you applaud, uh, you clap, whistle, and shout encore. And most of the time, the artist comes back in and plays some favorite piece the crowd's been waiting to hear all night. But what about Jesus? What kind of encore can you play after you have risen from the dead? Why does he keep coming back on stage with his disciples? My theory is that Jesus knew all too well that there was need for another encore performance, that there was unfinished work to do with those who had committed their lives to following him forever. At the beginning of chapter 21, The disciples have left Jerusalem, and they're now gathered by the Sea of Galilee. And just imagine the scene. What they're doing there, we can only guess. We can only imagine. They're probably just waiting for something or someone. It's almost like you can hear the clock ticking. And finally, Peter says to his peers, his friends, I'm going fishing and with a sigh of relief or maybe resignation, all of his friends offered to go with him. Now, I don't know that John uh, means it this way in his gospel, but Peter's words in this chapter have always been kind of discouraging to me. All of those high hopes that had been his when he was with Jesus seemed to kind of come crashing down. And now, with no reason to go forward, Peter goes back to that thing he knows best, fishing. There's nothing wrong with fishing. It's honest work, but Peter has been up on that mountaintop with Jesus. And now, he's back to sea level. That would be bad enough, but to make matters worse, Peter is not succeeding at the one thing he knows he can do well. That night, Scripture says, they caught nothing. Can't you just imagine Peter flinging his net out over those dark waters time and time again, hauling them in as empty as his dreams and hopes. What's the use, he probably muttered under his breath. What's the point? Even the one thing I thought I could do I can't do anymore. But then day breaks, and that stranger asks the question all of us who have who fish have heard many a time. Did you catch anything? And they shake their heads no, nothing. Well, why don't you cast that net on the other side of the boat, the right side of the boat? And to humor the stranger, for some reason. They do it but as we all know this time everything changes this time they're unable to haul it in because of that wiggling mass of fish that have been um, caught in the net and that miraculous catch serves as a kind of epiphany shining a light on that stranger and showing him for who he really is at least to the disciple Jesus loves John who says with a gasp it is the Lord and you all know the rest of the story. We just heard it. The thing I noticed this time around in studying this passage and preparing for this sermon is just how strange a request it was of Jesus to ask those disciples to cast their net on the other side of the boat, the right side of the boat. First of all, I'm thinking, since they're net fishing there's very little reason to expect that changing the location of the nets by at most a few feet would be likely to make any difference at all in what they're going to catch. So maybe this was a call to try something that had very little prospect of success at the request of a virtual stranger. They went ahead and did it. That's very weird. (laughs) And then I came across this interesting fact. The fishing nets were normally cast to the left side of the boat, which I've never thought of, if the source is correct, so that they could be hauled in more easily by the dominant right arm. Casting to the right side of the boat meant that if they caught anything, a large haul, it would mean it would be more difficult to bring up the nets. Symbolically, this resource suggested they would need extra strength from God and from one another to complete that task. Who among us tonight has not felt the discouragement and devastation of the empty net syndrome? By this I mean those times in life when we experience um, something that disrupts our lives totally. News of an illness of our own or of a loved one, an injury, a broken relationship, a lost job, a rejection from the school we had dreamed of attending. Or like in my case for the past few weeks, having to make life-changing decisions for my dad. as. We've cared for him as his health has declined fairly quickly, and we've had to help him transition into full-time nursing care. Difficult, life-changing times when life grinds to a halt. In times or seasons like these, the way we've been doing things has to stop, and we're required to cast our nets on the other side of the boat. Trusting, hope against hope, that Jesus is somewhere near to us on the shore, speaking words of encouragement and hope as we try to get our bearings again, waiting and wondering what new possibilities, what new directions will be provided as we follow his directions and pull up our nets on the other side of our experience. The disciples were no different in how they were coping. Life as they knew it had come to a grinding halt after Jesus died. Even after Jesus had appeared to them two times before and reminded them of how much they were loved and and breathed the Holy Spirit into them, over them, through them, they still had trouble finding their bearings, difficulty knowing where to turn or how to cope or just move on. And so they returned to the one thing they knew they could do well without Jesus. Fishing. They returned to one of their favorite fishing holes on the Sea of Tiberias. Probably hoping to at least make some money to buy food and pay the rent. After all, they were on their own again. I don't for one moment, think they had forgotten about Jesus. I'm certain they were convinced that Jesus had called them to do an incredible thing in his absence. I'm also sure that they had absolutely no clue how to go about doing it. But Jesus did not leave them in the darkness of their confusion. He shows them that their empty nets do not represent empty lives. Both their nets and their lives will be filled with hope again as they seek to follow his teaching and his ways. And Jesus gives Peter a special care, knowing that the most important thing he can do now is to empower his leaders. The church will depend on their ability to be able to look to Jesus to hope in what looks impossible and to believe that his word will never fail them. The disciples know the reality of failure all too well. They've failed Jesus time and time again, despite knowing that they were called to follow him. But do you notice something? To the end, to the end, Jesus never, ever gives up on them. He keeps reminding them not to depend on their own ways and power and wisdom. He reminds them of their calling as children of God and disciples of the living Christ. But this seems to be a story of call waiting, a story we've all experienced. You and I are called to follow Jesus, but most of the time, if we're honest, the one who calls us is waiting for us to respond. Waiting, but never giving up. Waiting, but always looking for ways to reveal himself to us, to pierce through whatever darkness surrounds us, to fill some empty net in our lives. Waiting to empower us to be able to take up our cross and follow him. It's that wonderful image of God in classic devotional literature of God as the hound of heaven, who relentlessly pursues us with his grace and his love. I've always loved that image. It's always been such a comfort to me, knowing that even when I get blown off course in life, there is that hound of heaven hot on my trail, waiting to bring me back, never giving up on me, The same is true for the Church. I often think that it is such a miracle that the Church of Jesus Christ is still in existence after all of the ups and downs and disputes over the centuries. Jesus has never and will never give up on his Church. The Presbyterian Church claims the motto of the Reformed Church tradition, which states boldly that we are to be the church reformed, and always reforming. This is because we believe that God is alive, that Christ is alive, and that the Spirit is alive in the church and in the world. And so our life together should show evidence of ongoing transformation. I am so, so grateful for the leaders of our church, our elders and our deacons, for all of those who are participating on our transition teams and our search committees, who continue to faithfully give of their time and their wisdom to help to tend and feed the sheep from the oldest to the youngest in our congregation, and to prayerfully discern how the Spirit of Christ is calling us forward into transformational ministry in this congregation. As we Contemplate the next five years of being in community together and living out our calling as followers of Jesus. My hope and prayer is that we will not be tempted as the disciples were to pick up our old familiar nets and ways of doing things. We can probably do that pretty well with or without Jesus. But wouldn't it be exciting, to trust Jesus, to lead us on paths we've never traveled before. So I want to ask you to pray for our strategic planning team, and our staffing task force, and the open and affirming task force. To pray for the search committees, uh, for our new preschool director and our new director of ministry of children and their families. These are exciting and important times in the life of our church. And to be sure, none of these processes are ever going to be perfect. But the exciting thing is that with our Lord's help and his promise to bring us back on course when we start heading our own way instead of God's way, we will be a living, breathing example of the church reformed, and always reforming. I worry about a church that gets either too discouraged or too comfortable with life as it is, and that loses the expectation that God desires to do a real work of transformation among us. Sometimes I even think our modern American church puts too much emphasis on our own decision or action to become a Christian. When we say things, common things, not that they're bad, but things like, since I accepted accepted Jesus as my Savior, since I took Jesus into my heart, and I don't deny that these are very important and life-changing concepts, but today's story reminds us of an even more important truth, a greater truth. We are not our own. Jesus said at another time, you did not choose me, I chose you. You are here tonight as his disciples, his followers, because for some strange, surprising, wonderful reason, he wants you to serve him, to follow him, to tell and to show all the world that he is alive and determined to have this world as his own. There is a great grace for us in this truth. I don't know about you, but I don't always act and think and believe like a Christian should. And I'm a, I'm a pastor, Well, oh, you knew that. But thank God, my relationship to God is not primarily something I do. It is something that God has done And that God is doing in me. And the more I can surrender myself to that reality, the more I experience the mystery of the reality of Christ in me, the hope of glory. The good news of Easter says that our God will stop at nothing to redeem this world. Nothing. The cross defeat death nothing will defeat the accomplishment of god's purposes for this world and we are a part of those purposes if you are here tonight as a disciple and i believe you are a follower of jesus then you become a sort of proof a living proof of easter living Breathing testimony that God really does work wonders in this world. In your own way, your story of being touched by God is probably no less dramatic than that of Peter's. When you think of all the reasons you might not be here, all the defenses against Christ that the world has to offer, it makes your own conversion nothing short of miraculous. And so on this third Sunday of the Easter season, remember that choosing the option of call waiting doesn't work with God. You are called. Jesus said, you did not choose me. I chose you, and I appointed you for ministry in my name. May God give each of us the courage to cast our nets in unfamiliar waters so that we too might be surprised by all the ways Jesus desires to fill our world and our lives with hope and love and mercy and grace. Hallelujah. Amen. Let us pray. Oh God, we are here tonight because you've called us, and in your mercy you have reached out to us and chosen us to be your disciples. Help us to be faithful to your desire for us. We feel at times unworthy, so unworthy, of the great trust you've placed in us in calling us to be your church. And yet we know you to be the Lord of life, the God of Easter, who also brought forth life from death, newness from deadness, something from nothing. And if you could do that, then you have the power to make even us faithful disciples. And we thank you for that. Amen.